I attended Joe Exotic's trial. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the podcast that loves to bring you all kinds of exciting people and animals and animal people, but as of yet, not any people animals, the Raw Safari Podcast. All right, y'all, it has been a crazy couple of days for me as I headed back from uh, California to Philadelphia and then up to New England, as I mentioned on Zoo News. Uh, Zoe and I were attending the wedding of her like best friend from high school, and it was a lot of fun. And um, I have been doing homework and traveling and working on the podcast, and life is crazy. But really, I just said that before because I wanted to make that funny voice where I go crazy because uh, I'm a goober. And so now you've all heard me do that twice. And uh, that's time you can't get back in life. Sorry about that. Anyway, the rest of this episode, though, is time that you are definitely not going to want back. Today, I am bringing you an interview with not one, but two National Geographic Explorers. Now, I'm guessing that you have heard that term before, but, you know, what actually is a Nat Geo Explorer? We know what National Geographic is. We know what explorers are in, like, the sense that they explore things. But uh, if you've ever wondered exactly what it means to become a National Geographic Explorer, you're going to find out in this episode. Uh, Steve and Sharon have combined to write a new book, which is all about big cats, and we definitely talk about that book a little bit in this episode. But honestly, I didn't even do a very good job getting to the book because we had too many cool stories to share. Uh, Sharon does a ton of really neat work with government agencies and trying to get laws passed and all that kinds of stuff. Uh, Steve is an amazing photographer with some really famous photos that we talk about. And um, I'll make sure to put up links to his page and everything so you can go and and see what we're chatting about. And uh, this is just cool. There's a lot of stories about seeing big cats in the wild and what needs to be done for their conservation and safety, not just in C2, but XC2, because we are finally getting around to talking about the Big Cat Safety Act that I've mentioned on Zoo News a bunch with some people who actually know what's going on. Um, I'll leave it for the interview, but there's a really good conversation about that and why maybe some of you who have reached out to me and said that you don't support it for certain reasons need to rethink that strategy. I think think you're going to enjoy what you hear about the Big Cat Safety Act. We do touch on some Tiger King stuff, um, of course, only, you know, in a negative way. But um, it's it's a good one, y'all. We go into a lot of details on a lot of cool stuff. 
Also, Steve and Sharon are a couple, and they are adorable together, and uh, you're going to hear some of that, and it is awesome. So we'll get to the interview in a minute. But first of all, I want to remind you to make sure that you hit subscribe, and that way you won't miss any episodes. Also, make sure that you're following along on this little adventure, at Ross Safari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and also at Ross Safari Pod on TikTok. I also want to hype up the fact that there are some really really amazing episodes coming. Y'all, I'm so excited. Um, Starting with this one right here, we are doing a seriously cool run of episodes, and I think they're going to blow your minds a little bit. So make sure that you're caught up, make sure that you're listening, and make sure that you're subscribed so you don't miss a single thing. And also, if you would like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash rossafari. For as little as $3 a month, you'll get some bonus audio from some of the episodes and a couple of other cool features and and functions and things. I'm just making up words now. Um, But if you feel like supporting me, making up words like that, then go ahead to that link or uh, you can also find it in the show notes and uh, become a patron and I'll love you forever. Literally forever. That's how this works. I am legally obligated to love you forever. All right, enough of my goofiness. Let's get to this interview. So without further ado, Here is the answer to the question of what the heck is a Nat Geo Explorer with Steve Winter and Sharon Guinup. All right. So uh, why don't we start off uh, by the both of you telling me um, who you are, where you work and what you do. My name is Steve Winter. I've been a contract photographer with National Geographic for around 25 years, and I specialize in big cats. And he's omitting the fact that he's also produced three documentary films on big cats. Oh, yeah. And, and I, two books. And I'm Sharon Guinup. I'm an investigative journalist and producer. Uh, I'm also a public policy fellow at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., which is a nonpartisan public policy think tank that is meant to you know, inform Congress. So um, we we tend to work on big projects, each of us, and we sometimes get the opportunity to work together. That's really awesome. I love that. And and we're here today to talk about um, your new book that you've put together, uh, together, together, together. Yes. So um, tell me a little bit about that. Well, it's called The Ultimate Book of Big Cats, and it covers all the big cats. And uh, my job as a National Geographic photographer is to get pictures that we haven't seen before. Specifically, my editor hasn't seen before since she's seen <laughs> about everything in, in her career. So and uh, the behavior of the animals. And I, you know, we I'm with them every day for the first trips around 10 weeks long. So you're out in the field every single day. And so that is what the book covers, everything you want to know about big cats. And, you know, in our work, we we uh, Steve needs to capture, you know, the amazing you know beauty of these animals, you know, as well as their kind of secret behaviors that we don't see. But as journalists, we also really want to tell their story, which means, um, you know, what's it like for the people that that share the landscape, you know, with top predators and um, what threats face these cats. Many of them, most of them are endangered. And 
you know, what kind of research is being done by scientists about these animals? And, and most importantly, um, what kind of conservation efforts are underway that are really making a difference to save these iconic animals? And that's all incredible. And I'm really looking forward to diving into that uh, with you both. Um, so, Steve, when you're out in the wild, what is it like? I mean, cats are shy in general. Um, what, what do you do to, uh, you know, make sure that you uh, are, aren't seen and that you get good photographs? And how does that work? Well, um, time is very, very important because some of these animals are very shy. And then I need to use technology on those cats, specifically like the uh, snow leopard, cougars, and some of the more secretive cats. I use remote camera traps to uh, get their image and they're created by the engineers at National Geographic. And then with that, I use an infrared beam and a camera and some flashes and set it up on the trail where the cat may walk. I have to learn how to follow or to be able to find these animals by their footprints, things like that, um, and set the camera up and compose it. When the animal breaks the beam in my composition, it takes 10 pictures. That first one is mine. It's the one I set it up for. But other than that, you're, it's time you spend every day out there searching for whether it's tigers or jaguars or lions or leopards or cheetahs. Um, and you get to know their habits. You get to know the area and the people that you're working with. And eventually we're all out for the same thing. You get those images you haven't seen before. And it sometimes takes weeks or months to get them, but we do. And, you know, we couldn't do these stories without the help of of local people that live beside these right. animals and the scientists that study them. You know, that's that's how we learn how to find them. That's how um, we know how to be safe, because let's face it, they are top predators. And although um, they don't traditionally go after people, some, especially tigers and leopards, can be dangerous. So, you know, we we need to do this work in a way that we not only accomplish what we need to, but that we don't get eaten in the process. Right. <laughs> Always a good goal. Always a good goal. Yes. yes. Um, so one thing that I like to do in each interview is, is get a little bit of um, the history. Like, how did y'all get to this point? So if you would just both go through what brought you into this world, that would be incredible. Well, it, it first started for us. Um, I was with a photo agency, Black Star in New York, and they asked me if I wanted to go down to Costa Rica to uh, work with Merck Pharmaceuticals and the National Biodiversity Institute of Costa Rica, who are looking for new drugs in the rainforest. And so I talked to Sharon about it and we said, let's all go. Um, our son came along. We were gone, what, six weeks? Yeah, our son, Nick, yeah. was five, five and a half. And, a half. Wow. and, and I, had, um, I had eight assignments from the scientific journal Science. Yeah. So we, we traveled all over Costa Rica for, for six weeks. It was our first time ever in the rainforest. Uh, we're working with biologists. Right. And, um, and that was it. From, from there, um, you know, Steve 
was uh, had been doing work for National Geographic, but then he became a wildlife photographer at the age of what, 34? Yeah, I didn't take my first picture of an animal until that trip. So I was 34 years old then and switched gears. We needed wildlife people also. So switch gears into wildlife, which was great. And I began as a photographer, uh, but I did people and culture and news. And and um, the last number of stories I, I did as a photographer before I went to graduate school and studied science and journalism, um, the science stories captivated me. So, you know, that's where I made the switch in subject matter. So I then, you know, became a journalist, um, eventually learned how to become an investigative reporter. And I also, you know, consult on, on film and TV. But, you know, when we were doing that, it was, you know, working in the New York area, uh, what I was doing here and then working with passionate, dedicated scientists in the jungle. Well, when you kind of looked at this one or this one, it was a no brainer that definitely wanted to work in the natural world and um so and tell stories instead of these single picture things that i was doing and telling stories was vitally important i think both of us reached a point in our career where we really wanted to make a difference we really wanted our work to have impact and uh so those have been the kinds of projects that we have increasingly gravitated towards. I mean, Steve's produced three films for Nat Geo Wild. Um, we will be doing more films. This is uh, this is my third book and his second. And we all need to make a difference. And and for us, it's it's with our our storytelling and our images. That's so awesome. And I have to tell you, it's extra inspirational to me because. Um, uh, so I'm a my day job is that I'm a, a touring drummer and I, I act and I do that kind of thing. That's how I make my living. And it was only, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years ago. I've always liked zoos and animals and stuff, but it was only the last, like I said, maybe seven or eight years that I started to get into conservation and understanding how important it is and how amazing it is. Um, and realizing that I could use my storytelling ability and even my musical ability in, in certain ways um, to reach people for this. And so I, I launched the podcast and I'm, I'm currently getting a master's in biology and um, working on science communication skills as much as possible. And everything that y'all are talking about, like the fact that you didn't take a photograph of an animal until your thirties, it means so much to me because I also didn't do that. And now I have like an animal Instagram and um, yeah, that's really cool to hear because sometimes I do feel, I'm not going to lie, you know, I'm, I'm in class with a bunch of people that are, you know, 22 years old and I'm like, oh, Oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> well, I started graduate school when I was 39. So I had that exact same experience. Um, you know, for me, I was switching departments. I, you know, I'd been a photographer. That was the art department. I was switching to editorial, but it was very different skills. And it was launching a new career. Um, and and uh, it's been really powerful. I love researching and and writing and um, and producing. It's fabulous. And you know, another really important thing that both Steve and I do is public lectures. Steve uh, does talks for National Geographic Live all over the U.S. Oh, yeah. and all over the world. And I, uh, I love it. I also do a lot of public speaking with the Wilson Center. And, 
you know, what what storytelling is, regardless of the medium, you know, whether you're doing a, a podcast or a multimedia piece or a story or a film or a talk, um, you know, we all need to, like, educate uh, the public, um, you know, and, and from my perspective, some of the work I do, it's also really important to educate policymakers and uh, and again, to to try to spark change. We did that on our last story that we did together for the magazine that came out uh, th- three months before Tiger King, but it was on captive tigers in the U.S. And it was a two-year investigation, and that really helped uh, uh, people understand the situation of the fact that we have more tigers in captivity in the U.S. than there are in the wild. Well, and and understand that, you know, it's not only uh, a really abusive thing to pull cats from their mothers when they're born so they can be handed around to tourists and then basically disposed of when they're four months old and too big to pet. But, um, you know, there's lots of criminal activity associated with those kinds of, you know, petting zoos, roadside zoos, um, everything from, you know, nonprofit fraud uh, to, um, you know, Joe Exotic was you know, jailed for murder for hire. Um, But there's also a great deal of wildlife trafficking. And um, many of the workers and owners of those venues have felonies, including like drug and gun charges. So, you know, it really is a very seedy and and, and abusive uh, activity. And, you know, our our, um, story was um, seen by every member of Congress because National Geographic gave a copy of the magazine to each lawmaker when it came out. And um, the Big Cat Public Public Safety Act just passed the House and is about to go to the Senate, and that would make it illegal for any kinds of hands-on contact with big cats or for um, anyone outside of an accredited zoo to breed big cats. And, and, you know, it's being, um, you know, addressed as a public safety issue, which it truly is. Absolutely. And I am a huge supporter of that act. But I will tell you, uh, I'm glad to hear you say that because I have many fans who have reached out to me and said that they refuse to support it or to get behind it simply because Carol Baskin is involved. And um, I, I get that, you know, she is part of a problematic um, thing in Tiger King. Just the fact that Tiger King exists is a problem in my opinion, but it does. And we have to worry about the safety of the animals, not necessarily the names attached to it. In right. Well, and humans, I mean, you know, all you need is, a, you know, a big storm in one of these ramshackle roadside zoos, like blowing down fences. And then, you know, why should local citizens and, or, you know, uh, public responders, uh, you know, be placed, you know, in danger. And why, why, why should just anybody be able to keep such a large, dangerous animal? You know, it, it, that's something that truly should be reserved for, you know, professionals at accredited zoos. So, um, you know, it, it shouldn't be a personality issue. Um, you know, I have met and we've spent time with and photographed at all of those venues. I attended Joe Exotic's trial. Oh my um, goodness. I yeah. corresponded in jail with Joe for six months. Yeah. Wow. 
And and the best thing is that the email was smartjailmail.com, which is the best oxymoron ever. <laughs> that's entertaining. Wow, that's really I'm I'm so glad that you you brought that up and that we were able to to share a little more light on that because I, I try to talk about it on the pod, but yeah, people will say yeah, but Carol, but hopefully uh, listening to you know a couple of experts here, um, they'll they'll believe me more. <laughs> so that's that's very cool. Um, now I'm curious. Um, the term I believe that is used to to describe y'all is um, Nat Geo explorers. Is that is that correct? Yes, it's correct. But you get that title Nat Geo Explorer by receiving a grant from the nonprofit National Geographic Society, you know, which was founded uh, in 1888, which is when National Geographic was founded. And without their support and grant support on all my projects, I wouldn't have been able to uh, be a success at them because it's very difficult for the magazine and to uh, fund some of these large-scale projects that uh, I love doing with Big Cat. You can't just waltz into, uh, you know, the Himalayas and and come out with pictures. You know, yeah. Steve, Steve camped in the Himalayas for three months in the middle of winter, 50 <laughs> below zero. Um, you know, had to go in with a, a whole camp and, you know, all everything, you know, trekked in on horseback. Um and he never saw those cats. It was all camera traps. You know, that takes a really long time and a lot of funding. So um, National Geographic Society, you know, funds these large projects. And we're also launching um, a nonprofit next month called uh, Big Cat Voices. And it's going to be at bigcatvoices.org, again, to fund films and these big projects that, you know, hopefully will continue to further conservation of, of these iconic animals. That's just so cool. I love, I love Nat Geo so much. Um, I'm a, I'm a big fan of looking back at, at life a little bit and figuring out like where you got, where you were going. And, um, you know, I've, I've certainly seen my fair share of, of documentaries and such, but also I remember growing up, my grandfather subscribed to Nat Geo and right. every time I would use the bathroom at his house, when I visited, it was <laughs> AARP or Nat Geo. So guess what? I spent my time reading. AARP. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> and, um, no, but it's so funny to me that, that, you know, I didn't even realize I was getting a conservation education. I was mostly looking at, at pictures and then reading the stories that looked interesting a little bit. And um, now here I am trying to become a, a conservationist. And and that's, yeah, I mean, you cannot deny that that had to be a part of it, you know? Both Steve and I um, had National Geographic in our homes as kids. Right. And uh, I did, did you, you mentioned that that was your dream, right? I mean, well, it was my dream. I got my first camera at seven and I looked at Nat Geo. And when I was eight years old, I said, you know, just to myself, maybe to my family, I don't remember. When I grow up, I'm going to be a National Geographic photographer. I know a lot of people say that, but, you know, uh, I only really knew how to be a photographer. So I'm very lucky that I was able to realize my dream. That is wonderful. And um, yeah, as, as I, I was the same way with music, honestly. And I was like, yeah, I'm gonna be a drummer. And they're like, okay. And now I'm, I'm a drummer. So yeah, it's, it's really cool when you get to do the thing, you know, that you said. That's very right, cool. Right, exactly. 
But enough of this human crap. Let's talk about some animals because this is an animal podcast okay. after all. Um, so I, I am so curious to hear just um, what some of your experiences have been like as far as getting some of these photographs. Tell me about like one or two big cats that you've you've gotten photographs of and, and tell me the story behind it. Well, um, <clears throat> my first big cat story was on jaguars. And it was the first, well, the second time I was ever really scared uh, by a big cat. And the, the first time was on my first natural history story, uh, uh, which was on a, the sacred bird of the Maya and the Aztecs, the Quetzal. Um, I was in a cloud forest in Guatemala. And uh, as I would walk back up to the one-room shack in which I was staying, all of a sudden, the hair on the back of my head would stand up in my arms, and I had no idea what was going on. I eventually would turn around some days and look, but I didn't see anything on the trail. But you don't see anything in a cloud forest or a rainforest because you can't see the trail except for about maybe six feet behind you because it's full of plants. You know, and one night I'm laying in bed reading my book, and I hear the stairs creaking then the floorboards creaking and then scratching and then sniffing under the door. All the hair of my whole body stood up <laughs> and I grabbed the walkie talkie to call the naturalist I was working with who lived down right at the base of the mountain. And I told him what was going on. And he's in Spanish. He said, Steve, don't worry. It's just a black Panther. <laughs> and I'm like, hold it. Come on, Carlos. I've been here five weeks and you didn't tell me I was living with a black Panther. And uh, he said, well, we didn't want to worry you. <laughs> and then I, the, my next story was Jaguars. And uh, I failed in the beginning by trying to use these remote cameras because the cats are really smart and uh, they do what they want. And so I knew I had to see them face to face. Got an email from a Brazilian scientist that said, I found a place you could see Jaguars. But you have to come because I'm only going to be in Brazil for two more weeks. So I went down to see him and started working in Brazil and found a place where you could actually see the cats. And, you know, we just got back from there. Yeah. Like, you know, Steve has now ago. done, you know, numerous stories there. I have as well. TV um, show there with Bertie Gregory. So the Pantanal is the world's largest inland wetlands. And uh during the dry season, you know, the waters go down anywhere from nine to 12 feet. And then, you know, then there's navigable rivers and jaguars come down to the banks to hunt. Oh. So, you know, we were just, you know, down there for what, about 10 days. And, you know, in that amount of time, uh, we had 15 jaguar sightings, including Whoa. a jaguar jumping off a bank to uh, to kill a caiman and drag it back up to go off and eat it. That's amazing. So, yeah. So, um, you know, the reason that we saw so many jaguars this time is a result of Steve's first of two jaguar stories. He discovered that um, most of the jaguars that were being killed were being killed by ranchers. It's a it's largely privately owned ranch land, and they blame jaguars for every cow they lost. Uh, Steve managed to get funding for a scientist to radio collar some cats then track them on a laptop and could prove to ranchers that there were cats nowhere near where that cow died. 
And in the meantime, it also got out in his story that you could see jaguars there. And it launched an ecotourism initiative. And um, many, many fewer cats get killed by ranchers now because they're worth money to local people. Um, And there are so many more jaguars than the first time that I went there, which was 2009. Uh, Steve first went there, what, 1997? 97, yeah. And uh, you would see just glimpses of these cats, you know, except uh, the one, somebody said, hey, you want to go to the ranch where Teddy Roosevelt hunted jaguars back in 1913? And I said, sure, but why? And they said, the biggest cat we've ever seen uh, starts hunting at dusk. So we went out in the pickup truck. Uh, After about 20 minutes, I see something on the road, just a dirt road on the ranch. Well, we went out and started walking behind it. After about 20 minutes, I looked to the guy that was with me and said, Sergio, where'd he go? And the cat's 12 feet away in the grass looking at me. I started walking towards us, try to get its eyes through the blades of grass, was taking pictures until the guy with me, Sergio, said, Steve, get back. His ears are out. That means he's ready to jump. I stepped back, but got the opener of the first ever Jaguar story in National Geographic. But that was, I was so scared. The camera was shaking. I couldn't breathe. You know, it was my my first uh, really being scared around big cats. But back then, again, they were much harder to see. They were were afraid of people because they were hunted all the time. Now they just hang out on the banks. They go on about what they're doing, hunting in front of us, even though we're there in a boat. Um, You know, and I think, you know, one part of that story that's really important is that people that live with apex predators, you know, there's a cost, right? I mean, big cats are occasionally going to kill livestock. And depending on how large an operation you have, that could be a huge financial hit for a family. So, right, you know, successful conservation relies on making an economically viable solution that helps local people protect the animals that they live behind. And in this case, you know, ecotourism has been very successful and 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 it's working. And you know, there's other stories we've worked on. Um, you know, some of the things that you did with snow leopards, for example, right? Right. Well, um in, in snow leopards it was the same thing uh that uh you know these predators will kill livestock. And then they want to kill them. Just to finish the uh, the Brazil story, that first scientific project found that only 1% of cattle deaths could be attributed to jaguars. And now in 2017, a Brazilian scientist did a a PhD paper and said that each cow is worth $2,000 in its lifetime, but each jaguar brings in $108,000 $108,000 every year in ecotourism income. So nobody's killing the jaguars in that touristed area where a lot of the ranches have turned into ecotourism lodges. On snow leopards, it was the same thing. Give people uh, a reason they have to benefit from living with predators. So help them build predator-proof corrals. You know, they have a lot of rocks, but chain link fence over those rocks means that no predator can get inside. And then I found most of these villages 
weren't even vaccinating their animals for hoof and mouth disease. So they were losing like 30% of their herd to disease every year. I got the vaccine from USAID in Delhi. I hired a vet, brought him in, started a program with a local nonprofit. And then uh, as long as the people promised not to kill snow leopards, they would get their herds vaccinated. In the end, they're getting 30% more money in their pocket every year. And they, they hated snow leopards. Now they love them because they're making a lot more money. I love these stories so much. That is so awesome. Um, wow, that's... That's and you so cool. transfer that kind of stuff to other big cats. Right. Yeah. And to any conservation really right. out there, I think, you know, that's, um, I, I'm, I, I'm not going to lie. When I started to get into conservation, I only cared about the animal side of it. And it has been such a journey to learn that obviously you need to protect habitats, but you also need to take care of these humans and that, you know, Unfortunately, in my opinion, I think we should all value nature for nature's sake, but we live in a world and money matters and feeding your family matters. And um, learning that has been um, really, I think, important for me and a bit of a challenge, if I'm being honest. I think we should save snow leopards because they're snow leopards, but I totally understand that I don't live with snow leopards and I'm not thinking that they're killing my, you know, cattle and making my family starve whether they are or not if i think it it's a problem so that is so cool to hear these stories in action and it's also so cool that y'all came from a you know non-scientific background and and through art were able to make this happen using science um i am wildly inspired by you both right now that's oh thank you (laughs) absolutely now i do have to ask something though first of all you two are adorable together for those listening you guys are looking at each other you're like pointing at each other who to say what it's it's very cute um and you mentioned a child so how did you two meet and how did this become like more than just a professional thing or was it personal and then you became professional partners how did this work out well, we were both um, interns um, for a, a series of workshops uh, for that Magnum Photographers held in New York. Steve was a photo assistant to Nick Nichols, who you know, Michael Nick Nichols became you know one of the world's you know most famous Premier. wildlife photographers, yeah. and I was working in the picture library part time at Magnum, um, which is you know a photographer owned cooperative, some of the best photographers in the world. And um, so we were both, you know, interns for these workshops. We met there. I was married at the time. Um, some years later, I, I got divorced. I, I had a son. He was quite young. And uh, and Steve and I got together. And, um, you know, Steve became Nick's stepdad. Um, we've now been together more than 30 years. and uh, And Nick went on many, many Many. of those trips with us. So he was seeing, you know, all these things at the same time as we were first seeing them. Um, And it's very poignant for us that um, we've been able to dedicate this book to, um, to his daughter, our granddaughter, Winter Rose Rugia and, uh, and to Nick, because, you know, again, many of these images were made with Nick uh, along so, you know, he is incredibly knowledgeable, uh, knowledgeable about wildlife and ecosystems as well. And um, yeah, it was it was um, a family adventure. 
<laughs> That's so very cool. much I love that. so. Yeah, I love that so much. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting because we all talked about like influencing the next generation, um, and clearly. Y'all did that, and um, that's so cool. I, I try with my son Miles. Uh, he's he's already met his first red panda, um, which is kind of my my favorite species that I'm I'm looking out for. And um, we'll go to a zoo or something, and and some kid will be like, "Oh, look at that red panda! I want one as a pet." And Miles will go, um, "Excuse me." Um, they're actually not good pets. And here are the reasons why. And I'm like, oh, kid, I love you so much. (laughs) Well, it shows what education does, right? Um, you know, we can teach, um, we can teach kids to recycle. We can teach them to respect wildlife. We can, uh, teach them to care about the environment and, you know, care about each other. Right. I mean, uh, you know, we, we can teach empathy and compassion and, 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 teach kids to make smart choices and to speak up. Absolutely. And uh, boy, we need all of that right now in this world. Um, We will get to the book, but I have one more kind of goofy question for y'all first. So you've been out there and you have seen all the things, but what is the number one animal for each of you that you wish you could see you know, in the wild, if there was one thing that you haven't seen yet, if there are any animals you haven't seen yet, I know there are like 5 million species out there, but y'all have been doing it. But what is the one thing? Well, my next story is uh, the Asiatic lions uh, uh, in India. And I always pick stories that have very unique behaviors that are caused by humans in many instances. So I'm really looking forward to that. Because tell you the truth, I've seen so many things. I can't think of something that I haven't <laughs> seen that I really want to you see. You haven't seen these. I haven't seen these, though. So as, as far as big cats go, I'm looking forward to see the Asiatic lion. I haven't seen them either. Because there's and- only 700 left, Oof. you know, and they're only found in India. Well, very Western India and Gujarat. They used to go all the way to the Mediterranean. Right. Like all the, you know. Roman lions, all of that. They were Asiatic lions. Uh, So there's only, you know, one one, uh, group of them left. All the gladiator lions, the biblical lions, all that kind of stuff that went all the way to the Mediterranean. And for me, um, I think there's two. I've always wanted to see a clouded leopard. They're really rare and really elusive. I'd also really like to see birds of paradise. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. All right. So let's talk about the book for a little bit. Um, why did y'all decide to make this book? Well, NetGeo came to us and asked us to do it. Right. <laughs> That's a darn good reason. I'm just putting this yeah. out there into the world. If NetGeo ever came to me and asked me to do anything, I, I would do it. So, uh, yeah, I get that. <laughs> but also, you know, education is really important to us. Um, you know, I years ago, for three years, I... Um, managed and taught uh, an artist and writers in the schools project here in Hoboken. Um, you know, Steve and I have done, you know, lectures and gone into classrooms and, and um, you know, education is really, really important. So we were thrilled at the idea of, of being able to share, uh, you know, these amazing photographs and, and lots of really interesting information, you know, with kids. And, um, you know, from what we hear, parents are also captivated. 
<laughs> I love since since I've gotten into doing some of these book interviews and such, especially, and have gotten books sent to me. I, I, they, I I'm I'm going to give them all to my son eventually, but they're amazing. <laughs> like there's so much good info and the photos are always incredible. And, um, yeah, no, I, I thoroughly enjoy all of these books. I think more than Miles does right now. Although as he gets older, he, he enjoys them more as well. <laughs> I, I'm sure. And, you know, it's great to have some of the, uh, you know, important stories from each one of these cats, you know, at, at the end of certain chapters with a nice big double page image of the uh, cat with with the story behind the image, which is very important. Because many of these were extremely difficult to get. And I was very, very lucky, but always staying positive that I would get them. And so those stories are fun. Yeah, no, that's One thing about awesome. Steve is that he is, Steve is relentless. He, you know, he spends months and months and months in the field. Uh, again, like, you know, really tough conditions, uh, you know, leeches, bugs, disease, <laughs> you know, heat, cold, humidity, you know, it, it's not all of it is glamorous and, and, you know, day in and day out, no days off ever. I mean, it's, it's, um, it takes a lot of dedication. And, and even if weeks and weeks and weeks go by and he's not getting the pictures that he needs, he always stays positive. He's like, tomorrow's another day and onward. Now me, I'd be having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> like, oh my God, I got this assignment and I haven't gotten what I need yet. But he hangs in there and he always gets the images. That's that's such an important lesson, and that's so cool. I uh, I respect the heck out of that. Um, yeah, I can't I can't even imagine. I mean, is it even one percent of the amount of time that you're out in the field that you're actually seeing the animals and and possibly getting images, or would it, you say it's less than that? No, no, it's more than that. I mean, especially okay. with big cats, you can find them, and we call them flat cats. They're just lying there sleeping for hours and hours <laughs> during and the hours. day, especially. You um, know, so we may see them, but then we'll move on to try to find an active cat that's very hungry. You know that that is moving, and we may come back to the flat cats because you never know when they might wake up. <laughs> but um, but it totally depends on the species. You know, doing that snow leopard story, three months in the field, he glimpsed one that was so far away that with his longest lens, it was a dot. The rest was all camera trap images. Yeah. So his time seeing them was essentially zero. Right. But, you know, tigers, you see them a lot. You spend a lot right. of time. Lions are, you know, as soon as you find a pride, they're there and they're in front of you. So it really varies dramatically by the species. That's really yeah. cool. How do you stay safe in the field? Because these are all protected contact animals in zoos, but I'm guessing you're not setting up fences. <laughs> no, no. I think they, to me, people ask me, how did you learn how to do this? And it's, uh, it, to me, it's scientists and local people. And in the end, it's more local people because they don't leave because they live there. And so you follow their lead. When you're working in a park, you're working with a guide and, a, you know, a Jeep driver and all that. And you find out who's media savvy and you work with them and you follow what they do and you never deviate from it uh, because your safety is at stake. 
because we're already walking in all these locations because I always do set up remote cameras to try to try to get these intimate views that you would never ever get because you couldn't be that close to an animal at low level eye to eye with a cat and uh, set those up so you have to go check set them up then check them and they're they're working 24 7 and so that's very important but it, it, it you know you are out there and it is dangerous so you just watch what's going on and, and i mean that said but the first time i set the camera trap up in tigers i went and looked at the guards that were protecting us and two of them were asleep and we knew there were five tigers close by <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Uh, so what? tell me some of the species that are, that are featured in the book that you're excited to educate uh, kids, but really everyone about. Because, you know, we, we all know lions, we all know tigers. But what are you excited to, like, help make kids more excited about? Oh, it, it's, you know, all five species of big cats are covered, right? But, you know, there's also one chapter on the smaller cats. Um, and you know, they too are often the top predators in their ecosystems. And some of them are really um, beautiful, like clouded leopards. Uh, some are very funny looking, like the palace cat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, I don't think people realize how many small cats there are. Um, I We're also really excited to include like some history and mythology in there, like you know, the um, cats were sacred to the Egyptians. They were part of the family. Um, you know, there's been a lot of mythology around tigers and 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 lions, the Nimian lion, right? Um, so it's very interesting to put um, these big animals in a cultural and historical uh, context and also look at the people that live with them and and especially the scientists and conservationists that are that are studying and protecting them. So, you know, we, we, we tell the whole story. It, it's animal, but it's also human because humans are impacting every corner of the planet. Oh, yeah. And that's why we need conservation, folks. Right. <laughs> Sad but true. But, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's really – I mean, this just – this is so cool. I am uh, – I'm so fascinated by – like I said, the juxtaposition of art and science that y'all represent. Um, it just, it gives me a lot of hope for things I want to do and, and for the people out there who aren't necessarily very sciencey, at least at the start of things, but can learn and can, can get inspired to learn. Um, I think that's really important. What is your favorite ever moment? Like, out in the wild and for, for you, Steve, and then for you, I want to know what is the biggest impact that you've had, like policy wise that you're the proudest of. Good, Steve. Well, um, I really, it, it would be hard to say I had, would have had a favorite moment because they're all based around success, either in getting an image or making a difference. Uh, getting the image is vital especially ones that my editor is just blown away by because you've never seen it before. But uh, making a difference is just so very important because you know there's going to be a future for that animal in that area. And then hopefully it spreads out, you know, wider for the whole species of that cat. 
and starts a conversation that, well, we can do this. And, so which and, images for, for pick one or two? Well, you know, um, obviously the cover of our tiger book, Nat Geo tiger book of the mom and cub is one, you know, that uh, it was only five frames that I got. Um, and uh, I didn't get it, you know, for the first five and a half months I was there because the females with cubs were killed the first week I was there. So, um, uh, and yeah, obviously snow leopards changed my life uh, because Sharon entered the images. I was already in the field on the next store and she entered the images in BBC Wildlife Photographer of the Year. And I won like five categories and the honor of being called BBC Wildlife Photographer of the Year. And I just never entered a contest because I knew I'd already won. Wanted to be a Nat Geo photographer since I was eight years old. So we have snow leopards, we have tigers. I love the picture of the leopard in the tree at night because it, it it's something that we just don't see. We pass pass it by because oh it's nighttime well guess what some of these cats are still walking around many of them are sleeping because cats sleep 20 22 hours a day but i've been uh just dying to do more work at night of these animals with the better sensors on these cameras we're able to do it in an easier way so for listeners that that image you know there's a a leopard up in a tree uh, it's in Africa, uh, in South Africa. The tree Africa. has no leaves. Nice. So, you know, shine a spotlight on the cat. Cats don't care. A flash. And then, you know, camera on a tripod. So what, like a, a number of second exposure, you know, to to bring up the stars and then, you know, flash on the cat illuminates the cat. So it's, you know, this cat under a canopy of you know amazing stars. So and and, and and of course, the Hollywood cougar came from here. I actually visualized the picture because I had to get something to, to do urban cats and I was failing in the Bay Area. And so I went down to L.A. and uh, I had seen that image in my mind's eye because when you're doing camera traps, you kind of know what you're going to get what because you have a certain frame. You, you see what the background is of your area. And obviously, I wanted the Hollywood sign in it, so I knew what the background was. I just needed the cat walking on the trail in the foreground. And, you know, it wasn't there when I first talked to the scientist about it. Eight months later, it was. And 15 months of putting cameras all over uh, the nine square miles of Griffith Park. Uh, 15 months later, I got the photograph. And it just influenced people and gave them hope. You know, gave it because you, you people would go, why are they so excited about a cat in a park where they all visit? And at first, they're very worried about the fact that there's a mountain lion in a park that has 24 million visitors every year. But only like six people have ever seen P-22 in 10 years. Um, but the photograph did quite a bit. So, you know, a number of projects that we have been involved in, even if I'm not working directly with Steve, I, I sometimes may end up doing, you know, offshoot stories or, you know, work on these cats in other ways. And, you know, the, the P-22 um, example is is really poignant, um, you know, because that cat was in Griffiths Park and Steve's pictures of 
P22 made him a celebrity. Everybody in Southern California knows this cat. P22, you know, like, you know, Brad Pitt, you know, it's like a household name. And, um, you know, the, the National Wildlife Federation, Beth Pratt, ended up carrying around a, a life-size image um, of P-22, one of Steve's pictures that he donated. Um, she walked around for nine years trying to, you know, influence lawmakers. And um, on Earth Day this past year, they broke ground on what will be the largest wildlife overpass in the world across the 101, right. a little bit north of L.A. And, you know, the reason it's necessary is because, you know, the area is, you know, crisscrossed with freeways and two of the you know largest remaining protected areas are bisected by these freeways. And it's not just, you know, cougars that are getting hit. It's deer. It's, you know, all the animals. And, you know, that endangers humans driving but it also is really impacting these animals so you know it this work can make a difference and um you know the power of photography is is you know notorious look at the images throughout history that people have seen um that spark change you know be it political social environmental um so yeah p20 p22 he's our favorite He's our favorite cougar. But it's it's, <laughs> it's something like P22, but then the US Tiger story also did a, did a lot, but we want to do more things that uh have a tangible end to them that we can make a difference with these projects. And that's what's important to us. And to, you know, tell you the truth it has been from the beginning because people ask me why are you working with scientists to try to figure this thing out about, you know, jaguars killing all the cows? And I said, well, I spent too much time on it to just walk away from something that ridiculous. And my best friend was the science, Brazilian scientist boss. And I said, hey, Alan, you should do a first GPS sat college study and find the answer to this problem. And we did. So Alan Rabinowitz was a renowned, um, you know, big cat biologist and and uh, Steve, you know, and I worked very, very closely, yeah. you know, with him for years. And um, and uh, yeah, that study is what proved that, you know, jaguars weren't responsible for every dead cow. And, and it completely changed the trajectory of, of uh, conservation in that region. And I do believe that it, we have a responsibility to do things like that. So. Yeah, I agree. I think that is absolutely wonderful. Um, so let me ask you both, where are some places that people could find not just your latest book, but your work in general? Many of my stories, not all of them, are on my website, which is SharonGynup.com. Um, you can also Google me. Steve has a website, SteveWinterPhoto.com. Um, as of October 10th, BigCatVoices.org website will be up. Um, and you can see a lot of my big cat pictures there nice. um, and learn a lot about what we're doing. And also, you know, on Big Cat Voices, we'll have like an ongoing, um, you know, Twitter and Instagram feed. And um, there'll be images and videos of us working in the field and um, look at the projects that are current. And go to my Instagram, Steve Winter Photo. Absolutely. Very cool. And uh, I think it is time for... It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But 
There's one tale left to go You're gonna laugh and say, oh no It's time for the Rossifari Poop Story <laughs> Well, you know, um, one of the grossest things that ever happened to me That to me just is a, is a nuisance But when you tell people about it, they go, eh you know, I have to lay down to put these camera traps up. And you know, when you're in swamps, you may pick up some nasty little things. And I'll never forget when I looked uh, one day at my belly button and saw underneath it something under the skin going around and around my belly button. They were called larvae migrants. And it was small little worms oh. moving around underneath my skin. You know, I also I had bot flies you know, on my elbows, on the top of my thumbs, and the top of my head. And we got those worms out. But those are a couple worm stories. But I have a lot of stories that my editor's like, I don't want to hear anymore. (laughs) So bot flies in in Latin America, they um, lay their eggs inside skin, and then their, you know, larvae hatch and and climb out so that's pretty disgusting uh for me i i don't have as gross stories but i do find leeches really horrific they're they're not only pretty gross looking but once you get them off like you know they have an anticoagulant in their in their saliva so you know you're just kind of like streaming blood and you just feel like you know it's a monster movie or something (laughs) (laughs) wonderful lovely oh man well thank you both so much for doing this um and and best of luck with with the book and and everything that y'all have coming up i'm I'm very excited to see and to be in your world now this is this is going to be cool thanks john thank you for having us thank you so much for for making the time for us today All right, y'all. So here's the deal. That was an incredible interview. Those two are amazing. I could do an entire month on those. We didn't even get to like the films and such. There's just there's so much cool stuff going on there. Uh, But I want to go see Big Cats in the Wild now. I know you're shocked. Uh, I'm I'm going to remind you all to go check out. It's it's going to be live soon bigcatvoices.org. But also, Sharon and Steve have a bunch of different ways to check out their various um, undertakings and and photography and all the cool work that they're doing. So I'm just going to put all of those links in the show notes because me yelling a bunch of URLs at you right now won't be particularly helpful. So I'm not going to do it. But go check those show notes and go check these two out and support them and and love on the work that they are doing because it is incredible inspirational work. All right. I want to take a minute to uh, say thank you to my Red Panda level patron, Laura Shank. You rock, Laura. And also to all of my patrons, including my new patron, Carol Wentz. Hi, Carol. Welcome to the family. I am so grateful to have you here and hope that you are enjoying all of the bonus audio that you can be checking out right now. All right, y'all. I have a dog coming at me who clearly wants some pets. And so I am going to end this episode and go pay attention to a dog. But first, remember, the word credits backwards is Stiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. 
You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.